You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we're going to be talking to another Gottlieb designer, somebody that uh, started designing pinball machines when he was 8 years old and made his own machine when he was 12 and actually did a um, college project with a, with a pinball machine and right out of college got hired by Gottlieb. So this is a kind of an amazing story of how somebody that was in, into pinball right from a very, very early age and was able to make his dream come true and start working and designing games at Gottlieb. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. I'd like to welcome John Osborne to our top cast tonight. Again, John worked at, at Gottlieb during the 1970s and 1980s, and he designed such great games as Haunted House, the three-leveled game. So we're going to be giving John a call right now. <laughs> John? Yeah. It's Clay. Hi, Clay. How you doing? I thought it would be you. Let's talk about your first, uh, your 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 first tidings into pinball. I mean, you know, before you were at Gottlieb or whatever, when you were a kid, do you, were you a player or anything? Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I can remember uh, my father holding me up so I could watch the balls roll down. And now, there was just there was always something. Uh, there was something. A whole different world under that glass somehow, and uh, I, I liked pinball right right from the start. And I used to try to try to make things out of uh, old, old doors or shirt boxes or with holes in them or something like that. You know, try to get that that sensation of the ball rolling down a play field and going into a hole. <laughs> so you mean you were you were like designing games when you were a kid? Well, I, I, the first first game I ever actually the first thing I put together that was something like a game was. Uh, I think I was in the, like in the seventh grade, and I, I took an old an old door, and and for an arch, I used a piece of a garden hose, curved at the top, and uh, I just had in mind some some holes, and ball would fall into a hole, and like push two wires together, and, you know, it was it lasted about ten minutes, but it was something to do at the time, you know, get the sensation of pinball. Never went into a cabinet or anything like that. It was just just playing around. And, and how old were you at the time? Oh, probably about twelve. Well, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> when I was, uh, I remember when, when I was six, we went to a place that had a lot of games. It was a Big Bear resort in California. And I, I'm not sure if this was the first time I had had this happen, but it was a, it was a major event because there was like three arcades in this town and there was not much to do because it rained. And so we spent a lot of time in the arcades. And I remember noticing the, 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 the differences, the, the way the, you know, on this game, the ball comes up on the right of the shooter. On this game, it comes up on the left. And this game has a drop shoot. And this game has a push shoot. And this game has a little push shoot. And uh, they were so different. And, and I think that might have been the time that I noticed that some games had something really cool, had these buttons on the side of the cabinet. <laughs> well, what, what, now, what era is this? Are we talking this is the, the early 60s? No, the 50s. The 50s, okay. Yeah. Okay, for some reason I didn't think you were that old. <laughs> anyway, it was just really interesting to walk up to a game and, you know, does this game have flippers or not? you, you got to kind of reach around and see. And I think, I think that was also the first time I had ever seen a bingo. And, uh, boy, here, here was something that, you know, I, I looked at this game and I thought, there's nothing on it but holes. 
and has these wavy springs along the side. Well, at that time, wavy springs been an old game, you know, like in the 30s or something. Right, right. And, uh, you know, what, what's going on here? They had all these games lined up. They all looked the same, except the backlashes were different. And uh, I remember my mom said, don't don't play these games. They, they tilt too easily, <laughs> which is funny because she was not a tilter at all, but I guess she couldn't get anywhere with them. And I, I'd play one once in a while, and I, I'd think, you know, what, what's going on here? And maybe, maybe the, when that ball hits that, that double flag spring, maybe that'll do something, but I, I knew it wouldn't. And So I just I didn't get it. And well, then, where, um, where were you growing up? Where, where, what state was this? In Southern California. In Southern California, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, and they had bingos in Southern California, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know whether they paid off. I mean, whether you did anything with them, I have no idea. This was not L.A. County at the time. Okay. This was San Bernardino County, so that, that probably made a difference. Um, and then uh, when I was like in the, in the junior high years, there was a famous pier uh, attraction in Long Beach called New Pike. And that was one of those great old amusement park piers that just had, they must have had... 30 arcades there. They must have been a thousand games on that on that pier. And then I, I no, they had bingos there too. And it was just, only now I was old enough to I, I walk up to a game and I hear this this, this motor running. So I'm not going to play that game. Something's stuck. I'm going to lose my money. And I still didn't know what was going on because there was just way too much stuff to read on the back glass and way too much stuff to read on the instruction cards. And so again, bingos were just what is going on here. Were those pay? You think those bingos were paying out then? Well, of course they paid out. I mean, they paid out replays, but what the location was doing with the replays, I don't know. Right. Maybe nothing. You know, maybe nothing. You just play them off. Right. Right. And uh, and then when I got uh, a bit older and I could drive, I'd go down to like Coin Row, which is which used to be the place on Pico Boulevard in downtown LA, where all the all the old line distributors were, and. Um, you know, I'd hang around there, and they, they'd give me old stuff. I got a lot of old stuff just by hanging around there. But there'd be some old games. Like, this would be in the late 60s. And here they have these old games from the mid-50s, or say. And, you know, they, they don't, nobody wants them. So how much is this flipper game? Well, this game is $50. Well, there's a baseball game over there. That's $75. Well, here's this game with all the holes in it. It's $400. What? <laughs> now, what's going on here? And, they, I, and I'd ask them, and I'd say, well, we can't talk to you about that because it's gambling. You're underage. So huh. it took me 15 years to find out what bingos were all about, and I've always had a soft spot for gambling pinball. <laughs> I gotcha. Huh, now, so now, how did you get from Southern California to Chicago? Oh, well, uh, you know, I always wanted to, I was always interested in this. I did have a game when I was a little kid. We had a, a, a Valley Vogue from when I was uh, about seven to eight years old, and then when I was uh, just going into junior high, I want, really wanted a game. I knew what was going on. I wanted a flipper game, and uh, my dad found one for me. It was I still have it. It's the Chicago Coin Sally, 1948. And uh, I acquired a few games here and there, but so I always was interested in this. I, I built a couple of things and, you know, fixed up and collected and whatnot. But then uh, as the end of college started to approach, uh, I wanted to work for one of the game companies. I did stay out of school one semester and worked for Portal Distributing in downtown L.A. on Coin Row, which was the Gottlieb and Rockola distributor. Hmm. And I knew I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that for a living, but I just I wanted to work work there for a semester. Had to no. get back into school because the draft wanted me in the worst way. This was during Vietnam. Right. And what uh, what were you studying in school? Engineering. And what school was this? In? Oh, uh, this was uh, well. Uh, I went to the college, a junior college, down in, in Santa Monica. 
and then I went to uh, got my degree at Fresno State College. Oh, okay. Which is now Fresno University, but yeah, you know, mid, in the in the Central Valley. For my senior project to get my degree, I built a game from scratch, a full-size game, which I still have. I built it from, uh, ironically, a bingo cabinet. We uh, Fresno was extremely rural at the time. Well, it still is when you get out of town. And I met somebody who actually said he had two old pinball machines in his barn. And I'm living in the dorm at the time, and my roommate said, let's get in. There was two of them. So we brought two games up to this shoebox-sized dorm room. And uh, one of them I fixed up for him. They were both the same bingo, a Bally Beauty. And the other one I started taking apart. This was going to be my game. So I salvaged all the relays and, you know, stuff like that, but it, mostly the cabinet. And uh, that was my senior project. I built it completely from scratch. I even made my own wire because I got wire out of the machine, of course. And uh, you know how old wire is. It all, all turns yellow. So right. I would take, I, need, I needed a wire, say, the, uh, with a unique color. So I'd take this yellow wire, stretch it out to the length I want, and start putting bands on it with marks a lot. <laughs> I, I made my own wire. <laughs> but it, it's a real game. It's a full-size game. The only thing that's not legitimate about it is it's, it's a novelty game. There's no replays because I didn't want to add that to the things, uh, all the circuitry and things I had to do, you know. So on this game that you made for your project, what, did it have any unique features or, or not so unique? What features did it have? Well, I, uh, it was uh, uh, the shooters on the left. I wanted to put the shooter on the left. And, uh, of course, it's called Southpaw. And uh, mostly it's just standard game parts, you know, a little little Williams, little Gottlieb, a little new, a little old kind of thing. And uh, I've got uh, just some arrangements of some posts at the top uh, and a and a, a spring near the gate that, that's from the bingo to kind of pay homage to the bingo. So there's a row of yellow posts at the top. Other than that, it's just uh, pot bumpers and kickers and, and flippers. The flippers are horizontal, again, because rather than, than angled down, I wanted that. I wanted to, you know, again, pay homage to the old games. And I built it to play, to use the one and one eighth inch balls. Oh, a larger ball. Yeah, you know, the old style balls, yeah. Huh, now why did you use the larger ball? Because that's what was used in old games. I wanted to, I just wanted to do that. Huh. Even though it kind of slows down the play a little bit? Yeah, uh, it slows down the play, but the large balls, uh, in a way, have more bounce because they have momentum. Right. More, more, more momentum. Yeah, there's more weight, so when they hit something, it, it you know, it, yeah, it can get a yeah. bit of bounce. Yeah, you know, there, there's a, there's pluses and minuses to both sizes, and they're they're just completely different. Right. The way the game behaves. Anyway, so that was my senior project, and I started sending out resumes, and you know, I had known Wayne Nyan. <clears throat> He'd been uh, very helpful to me. Anytime I would write to Gottlieb with some. Oh, questions and about history, or I work and I get parts and everything. I usually got a letter from Wayne, and uh, I say he was—he was very kind to me. He really was. He brought me along, and then when I came time to write resumes, I—I uh, <clears throat> I sent a resume to Gottlieb and to Williams in the Valley. Now, in those days, when you wrote out or typed out, typed out a resume, you had to leave a, a white space up in the upper left-hand corner so you could staple your picture. You had to send a picture with the resume. Right. That's really another time, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. So uh, I, I never heard from Bally. Williams said that I had to go down, and I forgot what, what it was. It was some something I didn't quite understand. They, they wanted me to go down to their distributor and talk to somebody down there first. Their distributor was Struley. In fact, it was right across the street from Portal. I, I, never, you know, I never did it. Well, then God, when I got a letter from Gottlieb, they said, 
we'd like you to come and talk to us. When can you fly out? Really? Can you imagine that? This was at a time, you know, not as they, they said, that the employment picture for grads was not that good. And here Godley wants to fly me out and, and, and interview me. Man, now, that, was, was, uh, that was an amazing weekend. Was Gottlieb paying for the airfare, too? Yep. Really? Yep. They set up and said, you know, when would be a good time for you? And we'll have tickets waiting at the, at the airport in Fresno. And uh, we all set up, set up the time and we'll meet you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what I said. Well, in of those three companies, did you have a preference of which one you wanted to work for? Yes, I wanted to work for Gottlieb. I always had a you know a soft spot for Gottlieb. I never did even I never even wrote to Chicago Coins because uh, I didn't know about the company or anything, and I had the Sally game and everything. It was good products, but every time I got a letter from them, uh, it was written like I don't know, it was like people that didn't couldn't write or something. They they really wrote like they you know they, they wrote my letters like my children. I wasn't sure what was going on there. I wrote these garbled letters full of misspellings. Uh, the uh, I got the same letter at different times. I got a letter from the same person who actually spelled his name differently both times. So I don't know, I don't know if I want to get involved with this outfit. I think they were really bad with the typewriter. I think that's what that was. I, I guess. <laughs> so you would write the company's letters, and what were you asking them? Oh, the, uh, the the I guess the standard uh, deal then you know you would you would say that uh, you know you graduate in uh, in engineering and you'd be interested in employment and, and no 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 I'd I mean interested and you, I, I, you I, said I, that you wrote letters and Wayne Nyans would respond to them. What were you asking? Oh 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 well uh, one time I was um, I was built building a game that I was copying. There was a bunch of games down at this New Pike place. And I, I say that because I think they were strictly local. They were there was a big cabinet with a glass on top, and you would flip pennies underneath the glass. And on, on the play field was these were were rings, metal rings set into the surface. And if a penny contacted the ring and the center of the ring, it would pay off. They'd actually, pay off in pennies. Huh. And the the, the 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 play field would slide, would tilt up, and all the pennies would slide off, and it would come back, and you'd start fresh. You could only get like three or four or five. Thought well, I need to build one of those. I I I could build one of those. I almost did, but one of the things I needed was uh, hats in the little in the scoreboard to say what how much you had won. You know, you know, inserts like playfield inserts. Right. And I had no idea where to get those. I didn't know. I didn't have a copy catalog at that time. So I wrote to him and said, "Where can I get these?" And he would he wrote back and say, "Well, just you know, I'll send you a catalog, and you go down to Portal and order it through the distributor. Things like that." And when I was building Southpaw. I was not sure how I was going to drill all the holes for the pop bumpers. I know I, I, I knew I had catalogs by then, and I knew this was a complicated profile here. How am I, how am I going to do this, you know? So I asked Wayne, and he sent me a drawing. He actually sent me a copy drawing of that of that profile in the wood. I felt like I had a piece of the company in my hand when he did that, you know? Huh. So he sent you a thing where you could make a template from it. Right, exactly. Interesting. Wow. So, well, Wayne Nyans, man, I, it's hard to believe that this guy, you know, was designing games, running the, you know, running the engineering department and writing new letters. <laughs> yeah. 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 He was, he was a busy guy. Yeah, he sure was. Well, what, one of the things I think he, he liked, though, is, uh, is, uh, when, let's see, from about, 
oh, when I was about in junior college, for a few years there, I was writing him letters, writing everything on a teletype. I was very interested in teletype, and I got, at that time, war surplus was very common. And I had a teletype set up. And I couldn't write, I couldn't transmit to him or anything, but I would actually use the teletype as a typewriter, you know. Well, it's all capital letters. You can't back up. You can't. You can't strike out. You know. And I would tell him that this is. I'm writing this on a teletype. Well, when I met him, it turned out he had been in the Signal Corps during the war as a teletype specialist. <laughs> so that that was that was great fun. So he knew exactly what was going on. You know. You were you were ringing every bell, weren't you? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So now, okay, they fly you out, and you know, how did that go? Uh, it went real well. I uh, stopped over in Denver and then uh, landed, and uh, they said they'd pick me. No, they said to uh, take the uh, the shuttle bus to the hotel. There was, it used to be a hotel literally right next door to the plant in Northlake. And I waited and waited and waited, and nobody, nobody came. This, this turned out to be, this this was a real ricky-ticky hotel. So I finally took a cab, and, and he uh, he picked me up that, after, that evening, and we went out to dinner to a real nice uh, steakhouse in Elmhurst, and that night, I also met Bob Smith, who was the operations manager, who used to be the chief engineer before Wayne. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I brought pictures of my collection and, and um, pictures of the stuff I built, pictures of Southpaw, and uh, and we just chatted, and I think we, we really hit it off. One of the things they did ask me, which I really was not prepared for at all, was, are you colorblind? Yeah, I guess they'd had some experience before with bringing people into engineering that, uh, whoops, couldn't tell the difference on the on the wires. <laughs> nobody, nobody thought of that. Yeah, I got a friend that's uh, he's got that problem, and you know, he has a really, really hard time with. Um, uh, and, well, he can't read the, the colors off any wire because he's colorblind. Oh yeah. You know. So no, I guess. Um, um, well, you know, a game lives and dies by colors. You know, we we had something like like uh, seventy eight or I forgot almost like eighty wire combinations. Right. A lot of wires, and no two were alike. Right, right. So now you spend the weekend at Gottlieb, you know, talking to these guys, and did they make you an offer right then? Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. They said they were uh, real pleased with me. If I'm real pleased with them, and and then uh, they they made me an offer, which was. <laughs> Actually, more than what I asked for. What? What? what you mean? You mean you, they asked you for salary requirements, and then they beat your salary requirements? Yeah. Yes. They they say, well, we usually start our engineers off it, and then they mention a salary that was just a trifle higher. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so you upped and moved all the way to Chicago. Yeah. Now they did not. Uh, they didn't pay for the move. They, they didn't. They didn't pay for the move, and. Um, we we agreed that I would start uh, say like the, the day after Labor Day. This was this was in May. I, I was there on uh, May fifth and sixth, and uh, and I was going to graduate that June. Now, what year was this? This was in seventy two. So, what was your first day at work like? Well, it was the Tuesday after Labor Day, and uh, I uh, I came in and, and asked, told the receptionist, you know, who I was. I was waiting that I here to see uh, you know, Wayne Nyans, and, and Wayne came out, and then he just, see, when I was there for the plant tour, they wouldn't take me in, he wouldn't take me into the engineering department, the engineering department was always locked, and he, even then, you know, he let me look through the window, but we couldn't go in, that was on a Saturday, 
So then I got to go in, of course, and he introduced me around, and uh, I don't remember, you know, every every detail of that that first day. But uh, so did, did you have an office and stuff? Uh, at the time, yes. In fact, I, I shared Wayne's office because one of the things he said he wanted. He wanted someone who could uh, write a new uh, instruction manual. You know that that manual that had been around, that instruction and service manual, was a was a catastrophe. I, they said it helped a lot of people, but you know, as a writer, I looked at that thing, and again, I, it's hard to know what the heck they mean sometimes. And he had seen my my uh, the report I did for my senior project, which was like the history and development of pinball. You had to turn in something in writing, you know, for the to get the degree. And sure. they had seen that, and they, they liked my writing. So that was one of the first things I did, was to rewrite the uh, service manual. Do you still have a copy of that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I don't know how I wish. I don't even have a, I don't even have a copy of the report, the, the report that I wrote. That had pictures in it and everything. Oh. It seems like you saved everything else along the way. Yeah, I saved everything else, right. Uh, but, uh, and then, uh, they kept, they kept rewriting it and, uh, you know, saying we want this and we don't want that. And it was a big book. They, they wanted something much bigger than just a little, uh, pamphlet that they had. And, uh, I'd pick it down and put it up, you know, put it down and pick it up now and then. And then I got to doing other things. One of the first things I started doing was running cable. They, when, and whenever we do a, uh, a, um, what's the word, engineering sample, which is the first time the drawings and the documentation is tested to make a game. It's still built in engineering. We uh, we have to run a cable to see if the cable can see if the run-ins are right. And I remember doing that running because we had we had wire racks and stuff in engineering. Hmm. So I did that. I ran cables and uh, just just general stuff. Let's see what else. I think I did some. I checked some drawings. I did, did some of that stuff. Didn't have an office though. So how did you get to, you know, designing your first game, which apparently for Gottlieb was pro football? No, Hit the Deck. Oh, okay. Well, Hit the, hit the Deck came... ...by myself. Uh, we, had a, we had a room, a small room off of engineering, where we had games that we would play. Because <coughs> we had to, you know, test the games. We had to play the crap out of them, see if they were any good. And... Say Ed Krinsky would bring in a game, and you know, here's a new game that needs to be played. We'd set up playing sheets and, and start playing it and evaluating it. Well, it might turn out that uh, say this this rollover over here is, is is too tight. We can't get at it. What we need to do is move these posts over a little bit. So Wayne would tell me, "Okay, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and, and you know make the change." Some of them were, were pretty involved. Like they'd, he'd say, uh, "Yeah, we need to add a roll over here. That's going to do this this new function." Well, we've got to grill the play field, you know, put in all the wiring, add a relay, you know, make it. We still built it like a real game. So, and then we had to uh, 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 like redline the, the schematic. So some of the changes were pretty substantial. <clears throat> I, I I did that for a while, and then then we had a we had a guy that was working on his job was making light box test fixtures, which was just, we just used a bottom board and put on a row of lights and a row of, uh, like, uh, just uh, contact blades that you could operate by hand, and you plug this into the light box, and it would test all the wires, but particularly in a, say in a single-player light box. 
would test all the de- test the decagon units, test the tilt switch, test every wire, every light. It was pretty simple, but you know that was that was his job. Well, one day when I wasn't there, I guess in the evening, they got he and Wayne got into a big argument. The next day, he told me he had to let this guy go. So this is going to be, in addition to your other duties, he said you're you're going to be building uh, light box test fixtures. Well, that was my first real real responsible job. Hmm. And then I did that for a few years, and then and then another guy that uh, did all the foreign games uh, said he was going to leave, and he broke me in on his job. That was a very responsible job because our foreign games we did not have one of those one size fits all cables like uh, like the other companies. We had specific modifications for a specific country, and we 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 had uh, like run-in chain sheets in addition to deletion sheets, and uh, so like a game for France is only for France. Game for Germany is only for Germany. So that was a that was a pretty responsible job. And it was sometime around there, I think Wayne said, because uh, I had been helping with the modifications of games and su- making suggestions about, you know, this game might play a little better if, and what do you think about this, Eddie? You know, he said, yeah, go ahead and make the change. Um, Wayne said, uh, uh, you want to try to design a game by yourself? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, well, go ahead, do a single player. And that's how uh, Hit the Deck was born. Now, on the Internet Pinball Database, they talk about pro football as you and Ed Krinsky designed that game. But you're saying that that was an Ed Krinsky game and you had a smaller role to play in that? Well, let's see. Now, I get, I have to, uh, I, I get them confused. There's pro football and there's gridiron. Which is which? Do you remember? Yeah, Gridiron is the two-player that came out in 1977, okay, and Pro Football the was the wedgehead that came out in 73. Right. The, the, uh, the, the, the single player was Eddie's, and that was there you know, when I came along. And, uh, and then a few years later, Wayne said to me, uh, we need a two-player version of Gridiron, or Pro Football, whichever. And he said, you know, I want you to make it. Okay, fine. Uh, well, that game did have one thing in it that I thought was really, really bad. Uh, if you shoot the ball at the... I'm probably going to get this wrong. I don't remember exactly, but I think if you shoot the ball at the very target, and when the very target pushes the ball out, it will push it out. No, no, I strike that. That's not right. It is possible for the ball to go out the out rollover, which gives you a full touchdown, while the motor is running from scoring something else, and you don't get the touchdown. Mm. That was it. In other words, you, you got cheated big time, because the rollover would be hit while the motor was running from something else. Right. And that really, that was one of the worst things I ever saw in a game. And I said, I, funny, because I said, if I ever, in a position to design a feature like that, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. And here Wayne hands me this game and says, make a two-player version of this. And so I did. I put a I put a feature in there that would delay that rollover if the motor was running. <laughs> huh? I never told Wayne about that either until it was done. <laughs> Casey said, "No, I don't want you to add another relay because there was a lot of relays in that game. You know, being a center shooter, multiple player. That's that's a lot of circuitry for that." Right, and they counted the relays for the for costing, right? Well, we counted everything. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that was that was something else I had to do in the early days. Yeah. Um, when a game was accepted and we made the engineering draw, uh, the engineering sample, we had to count the connections. Uh, in other words, the play field would have so many hundred connections, the light box would have so many hundred connections, and so on. We count, that was for, I think that was for staffing. 
to know how many people they needed out there on the soldering line. Because I think each person just soldered on a few a few wires and then, then moved on. They soldered on the same wires. Hmm. And we counted, uh, uh, you know, one wire was one, and then uh, an 18-gauge wire was one and a half, and two 18-gauge wires was two, and, and, and like that. And we kept a running total. Interesting. Right. Now, so, of course, we counted the relays. They counted all the hardware, naturally, you know. Now, how did they draw schematics? I mean, that would seem like, I mean, which came first, the, the chicken or the egg, the schematics or the game? Uh, well, sort of, uh, let's see, well, when I laid out a game, I have to, I think, I'm trying to think, because you're right, they both sort of had to happen at the same time, because when I would lay out a game, I'd lay out a play field that I thought was, was going to work, and then uh, either before or after I drilled, it didn't, it, it, it didn't matter, but for me to wire that game, I had to have a schematic. So I would just start, you know, when I would do a, a, hand, a hand sample like that, I would omit most of the tilt circuitry. You don't need all that stuff. You don't need the coin circuitry and all that stuff. But you do need some anti-cheat. You need tilt. And uh, I would just just hand draw it. You just hand draw it. And uh, when I would, as I would build up the schematic, I would put the wire colors on, and then I had a table of all the relays and the motor, and as I would add a color, I would write that color on, say, have a, a yellow-green wire on the end relay, where I'd put, under the end relay, I'd put yellow-green, so that I wouldn't use the same color twice, because you're not allowed to do that. That was one, That's one thing that makes games, or at least got me games, more serviceable. You never have the same color wire on the same component unless it is the same wire. Right. And, uh, ah, you know, I just, just gradually build it up. But by that, by that time, see, when you lay out a play field, you have to have some idea how it's going to play. I mean, where are you going to put the hats? Where are you going to put the lights and things? You have to have some idea what you want this target to do. And having that in mind, then you start, start with a schematic. So they're sort of both built up together. Now, how did Gottlieb, like, as far as the wires and the wire colors, did they dye their own cloth-colored wires to get those colors? Uh, well, not. No, we didn't. We there was a you know wire company that we bought from that did, which is that's very typical. Most wire companies have the ability to do that. I'm not sure if it was made in the basic colors, and then the local wire company just added the tracing and the modeling. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where the wire industry was was at that point. Because I heard that Gottlieb, you know, when they went to the PVC colored or PVC covered plastic covered wiring, that Gottlieb actually had wire stripers that they could put the wire colors on the wires. That's right. When we went to Solid State, we we couldn't use the cotton anymore because of all the all the connectors were IDP, you know. And so yeah, we went to plastic, and I guess it was it was decided high up that there's no way we're going to get plastic in you know a hundred colors like this. So we bought all white. And we bought, uh, I did, this wasn't here, this was at the, uh, the, uh, Fargo facility. They bought a, a three, a three stripe machine. And I guess they had to use all the stripes. I don't know what, but they did that on purpose or what, but it worked out pretty well. And so the, the first color, it was always white, the body color was always white. So the first color would be zero, 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 which would be three black stripes. And then zero, zero, one, which would be black, black, brown. And, and so on. You know, you had all your colors except for white. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Now, when you did hit the deck in Neptune, which was the, you know, one Neptune was the Attaball and hit the deck was the replay, right. 
you used uh, black score reels. Was that like a first? Oh, the, the black score reel with the red numbers? Right. Yeah, well, see, by that time, Solid State was, was known in the industry. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, Mirko had made their game, and Bally was, you know, sniffing around, and we knew it was coming, and I think somebody got the, the idea to, to do these drum units to sort of look like digits, you know, a digital display. Uh, well, we weren't really trying to fool anybody. It was just, it was just to kind of jazz up the game, that's all. Yeah, that, that, the hit the deck in the Neptune, did you actually, when you designed this game, did you come up with those themes or were the themes handed to you or how did that work? No, in this, in this case, no, the theme, there was no theme. In fact, I don't remember if I had any theme in mind for that. I, I usually don't because, uh, I'm, you know, not, not that good at it and I, I realize that any, any game can have just about any theme. The only one I specifically set out with a theme was uh, was Blue Note, but that that was a little later. No, I just uh, you know made a game, made a single player game, and then I let uh, let the art department uh, and, and management come up with a name. Now, did you pick the artist? Like it seems like your all your EMs were uh, you know used Gordon Morrison as 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 the artist, or was that just who was doing it? Yeah, that he was he was the only one doing it. And you know he wasn't on. Uh, he wasn't at the company. He was over at, at Poster. You know, right? And uh, they would just send over. Um, um, you know, it would be a key plate. I mean, that's right. I think he, uh, Gordon, would come up. We would let him know the theme, and he would come up with some artwork, and and he'd send over a key plate, and then we would make a light box insert to match the key plate. Hmm. Now, what what is a key plate? Okay, a, a key plate is a backlash that is, it's, it's like a red wash on it. Think of it, it, but it's transparent. It's like a, like a transparent red paint on the back of it, and all the outlines of the artwork is there. In other words, like the circle, the, say the, the five circles where the ball in play is going to be, the opening for the replay. In other words, you, it's like having a, a light box backlash that you can look right through and see all the light bulbs on the other side. This, this tells the person making the light box insert where the artwork is, where the illumination lights have to be, where the match lights have to be. So it's like, a, it's like a, uh, just a single black line sketch of all the artwork on the back of the back glass. Okay, so then you can make the insert panel, and then what? You give the insert panel to the cabinet company, and they take it from there, right? I, I'm sorry, what now? Well, you, when you did that, then somebody in engineering would make that insert panel, right? Right, right. So, yeah, our, our, our tool and die person would, would make the, the light box insert that would, you know, match the key plate. And then is that handed off to the cabinet company and they would take it from there? No. Uh, <clears throat> see, most of our light boxes were, were standard. When I began working, on a, uh, began working on a game, I would find an empty single-player light box, uh, I'm sorry, empty single-player cabinet in engineering. So it would be an empty cabinet, but a single-player light box in place, because they were all wired the same. Same thing with the, the well, same thing with all of them, all two players, four players, balls, whatever. For engineering purposes, you could just plug into an existing light box. So we didn't have to go to the light box every time. But once the key plate was done, that then it would go back to, uh, then it would go back to Gordon, he could do the real artwork. And I think the, um, yeah, I guess the uh, the uh, the light box would have to go to the the woodwork. I'm not really sure where that came from. 
Now that you mention it. Hmm. Now, now tell me about Strange World. Do you, that's one you did, right? Yeah, that was the second one I did. Well, there's really not much to tell. I'm always, always striving for something different. I don't know what I'm after, but I'm, I'm trying to, you know, strenuously try to have something that doesn't look like the last game or the game before it. And so that's why it looks like it's such a hodgepodge of arrangement. That, that, that's the only explanation. I wasn't, you know, didn't have any theme in mind or, you know, any any setting out to accomplish anything in particular except novelty. That's all. All right, we're going to take a little break from talking with John Osborne of Gottlieb, and we'll be back right after these messages. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal, covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at www.pingamejournal.com. All right, we're back with John Osborne of Gottlieb. Yeah, now what about Rockstar and Blue Note, Rockstar being the out-of-all version of Blue Note? Well, Blue Note, uh, again, you know, time to make another game. <clears throat> and uh, I've always been interested in mechanical musical instruments, you know, automatic pianos, music boxes, that sort of thing. And at that particular time, I was uh, getting very interested in piano tuning, because you can't work on a player piano or a Nickelodeon without, you know, having some knowledge of piano. Pianos, and you've got to be able to do some some degree of tuning. So music was on my mind at that time, and I thought, you know, that'd be kind of neat to have, say, uh, maybe uh, like a scale, maybe eight targets someplace, one for each note, something like that. And I laid it out. And when I laid it out, I had the theme, the musical theme in mind. And that, in that case, that that followed through. You know, the do re mi thing for each target, and that that they liked, so they they kept that theme. Didn't I write you about that? No, 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 you didn't. Okay, all right. Well, this game did have a feature on it, but I really wish they had uh, capped it. And I, I realize now they probably could have if we used a flipper button. But at the top of that play field, there, there's three rollovers. And they're, they're, not, they're not mandatory. You, you can miss them, but you usually don't. And, uh, you know, it's just ABC. And when I laid the game out, I had the three hats up there, along with three... Uh, I guess three red hats above that and a big yellow hat above that. And when the ball is at the shooter, I added a button to the front of the cabinet. So you could press that button and one of those yellow hats would light. You know, it would just toggle as you press the button. The idea where these were five, and they were 5,000 points. The idea was you could call your shot. So you press the button until the, the hat that you want is lit. And when you shoot the ball, the button shuts off. There was a, there was a runway switch up near the gate. Again, thinking of sort of like bingo, you know, the ball switch. And uh, if you got in that hole, if you got in that rollover, you got your 5,000 points, and then the, the hat went out. Or even if you didn't get it, the hat would go out. The only time that feature worked was when the ball was at the shooter, so you could, in effect, call your shot. Huh. They, they didn't want to. They didn't want to keep that there. I think they didn't want a custom cabinet with that button in the front. You know, and at that time, I don't think anybody had thought of the idea of using the flipper button for something like that. So that that feature didn't didn't survive. That's kind of a cool feature, and it's one that, of course, was the mainstay of '80s and '90s and even present day pinballs. I know, I know, and it was so simple with just a just a relay, you know, just an AS relay. <laughs> but uh, they they didn't want to do it. So, was there any other features or ideas or even games that you that you presented to them that didn't get made? Oh, uh, most of us made, uh, you know, lots of games that, that didn't get built. Right from the start, I'd always been uh, intrigued with what I call the subway unit, where, where the ball would go would go in a hole and come up someplace else. 
And I made a couple of games like that. And they, they just, you know, that's a lot of new hardware and new tooling, and uh, just, just never, never came along. And then I, one day, I got the bright idea of using the the ball return, our, our ball return. You know, how about if, you know, the way it's sort of angled in a knee fashion? Well, how about if I straightened that out and and, lay, and screwed that underneath the play field or something? And I tried it, and they liked it. They really liked it. And that's the game that became Volcano. Oh, okay. Subway unit. And uh, I didn't want to have a flap over it. They wanted to put a flap over it. I really didn't like that because that, that did compromise the quality of the game. Sometimes the balls don't get out of there. And uh, by not having the flap there, it was possible to shoot the ball into the into the hole. It was like like a pocket-in-the-mouth kind of shot, which I thought was really nice. But they didn't. They, they wanted to put a flap over it. But uh, that was the first subway unit. And then uh, another one that I would wanted to try was multiple balls. Not not like balls of popping, nothing like that, but just uh, maybe, maybe two balls. And that was uh, Force 2. And the way I did that, that was with the old System 1. I just put a kick hole right next to the shooter. So the out hole would kick the ball into this hole, where, and then the hole would kick the ball of the shooter. Well, that's where the extra ball was, you know. And uh, they liked that. That that worked out. They they didn't stick with that plan. I think they felt it might not work long term. They came up with something else. I forgot to hold the extra ball like that. But uh, Force Two was 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 my game, and that was the first multiple ball game we made. Yeah. Now Force Two had a boatload of drop targets. That game's actually really fun to play. But none of your other games really had drop targets. But Force Two had an abundance of them. Um, I don't know. No, no reason. Somebody asked me that recently. That's a funny thing you should say that because somebody asked me recently was the reason that uh, my games don't have drop targets is because they, they told me to not spend so much money. Well, no, nobody ever said that. There was no real reason. I think um, I remember making some with drop targets that didn't get taken. They just, just didn't, you know. Um, I think it was just coincidence. I think, in, you know, I was trying for... It seems like every game that we made had drop targets. So let's build a game without drop targets. You know? Try right. Else. Right. Well, Ed Krinsky's signature trademark was drop targets, I guess. Yeah. 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 Now, how come, you know, during the 70s, you didn't design more games? I mean, more games of yours weren't made. Um, I don't know. Uh, they just decided that they didn't want these particular designs. I, I didn't design that often because I had other things to do. You know, I was not solely designing. Right, and that was pretty much Ed Krinsky's role, right? Right, right, yeah. Right, okay. And we almost made a game. Uh, you remember, uh, what's that game? Uh, Sing Along, Swing Along, that had the multiple hole kicker. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that would be Melody slash... Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that game. Right. Yeah, I, I saw that in the catalog and I thought, you know, maybe we could do something with that. So I built a game with the with an extra window. In other words, instead of three holes, it had four holes. It was up at the top of the play field and was angled. In other words, instead of being straight across, it was angled, uh, uh, sort of angled down slightly. And so it would kick from one hole, one hole, one hole. And then the last hole was a regular kick hole, which kicked it down to a flipper. This was at the top of the play field. That was a good game. In fact, they were going to make that game. They were actually going to build that game. I don't remember any of the rest of the play field, but... Of course, I surrounded the, the row of holes with some posts, you know, always getting that, that mention of bingo in there. 
And that feature worked really well. I had it so anytime you got into a hole, it would either light or not light. It would toggle. And the idea was to, if you lit them all up and got in the first hole and hit every hole that was lit, that would be a special. Hmm. Which is, so that didn't happen very often, you know. That worked out real well. In fact, as I said, they were going to build that game, and they were going to call that game Haunted House. And, and why didn't they build it? I don't remember why they didn't build it. I don't recall. Well, speaking of Haunted House, now, how did you get to designing Haunted House? Well, we had gotten a game uh, from Bally. I think it was called Xenon. They had a, first, they had a, a, a tube over the play field that would carry the ball from here to there. And it was sort of like a double-decker. And uh, we didn't think it was very much, but it seemed like, you know, this this, this could be something we, we need to at least address. And uh, uh, Gil, Gil Pollock, uh, got us into Krinsky's office one time, and he said to, to John Burris, he said, I'd like you to design a two-level play field, a two-level game. And he turned to me and said, I want you to design a three-level game. And I think John's game was uh, Mars. That be Mars God of War, I think that was became the two level game. Or Black Hole. Black Hole, that's it. Black Hole, sorry, that's it. That's it. That's his game. <coughs> that's it. And then uh, my, mine was the Haunted House. They wanted a three level game. So what challenges did the three level game present to you? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the loaded question, right? Yeah. In fact, I, I wrote an article about that game. Um, uh, well, just everything. You know, they said they did not want to uh, uh, make a special cabinet. That was the first thing. They didn't want to go do an extra deep cabinet if they could help it. And, uh, well, first thing, you know, what, what are you going to do? You're going to have uh, two levels below the play field, one above, one below. You know, you have to start thinking as, as not only as, as a designer, but, you know, how are you going to engineer this thing? How are you going to put it together? If you have a play field above the main play field, then you're not going to see the ball for a while. Well, you know, what about that? How are you, you going to deal with that? And, uh, well, you know, what I ended up with uh, for the hand sample was pretty much what the final game was, pretty much what you see. I thought to, to accentuate the, the fact of the three levels, the first thing the ball should do is decide which level to go to. So that's, that's why there's those three holes up in the upper right-hand corner of the play field, left-hand corner of the play field. Right, where you can go down, you can go up, or you can stay on the main level. Right, right. Hmm. And uh, some of the problems I had was uh, determining the size of the window for the, the lower play field. If it's too big, you got nothing on your main play field. If it's too little, you, you're not going to have enough viewing distance. So, of course, like all issues in all engineering, it's a compromise. And I couldn't, for the same reason, I couldn't have kicking rubbers on the main uh, level because kicking rubbers stand out from the out from the rubber line, and that's right where the window would be. I thought about designing a new kicking rubber for that, but I had so many new things in that thing, and this is going to be a hardware nightmare. So I knew I, I better not better not venture into that. Yeah, I mean, like you had the trap door. That was a feature I, I've never seen before. Yeah, that was something new. Yeah, and uh, the. Um, uh, what's the other thing? Uh, the vertical up kicker? The, the vertical up kicker thing, the VUK as it may be. No, no, the target that's right in the middle. You know, that, that takes you to the lower level. Oh, the one that kind of like disappears? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, that looks like a spot target. Right, right, right. That was something, that was something else I had thought about for years about some kind of roll down target. What could, 
what could we do if the target, instead of dropped or just bounced the ball, suppose that the ball just pushed it down. But the problem is, you no, know, then what? Well, you got the ball on the other side of the target. Now what are you going to do with it? Well, now this thing came along, and I thought, this is it. Now I'm going to use this thing. And to make it a surprise, I put it in between two regular targets. And uh, it, it worked better than I ever thought possible. I mean, you know, people would come in from management, and they would hit that thing not knowing what it was, you know, and the ball just disappeared. It just it just vanishes in front of a player. That was an excellent feature. In fact, I got a, I got an a international patent on that, that roll-down target at the time. Now, how come they never used that again? Uh, because it would probably take a two-level game. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, it, it wasn't uh, too late, that too far after that, that, you know, the company, the whole industry started to go downhill, and it just, there just wasn't the, the will to make ambitious games like that. I, I always suspected that, uh, in spite of its success, I'll bet Haunted House uh, lost money. I, I don't know. It would take a, almost like a forensic accountant to really determine whether it did or not, but I, I, I'll bet management was glad to see the end of that game. <laughs> you mean because it was just too expensive to make? <clears throat> I think so. <clears throat> you know, we had to have a, we had to move the bottom board, the, the, the power supply panel couldn't be where it usually was, so that meant a new cabinet, all new jigging for the for the cabinet. Everything about that game was was special, and it was just like I said, it was so much new tooling. It was a, it was a beautiful game, but it was a heavy, overfeatured freak. In terms of production. Now, did you ever think about making that game a multi-ball game? No, 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 no. Uh, it, it would have been control would have been so difficult. It would have been just impossible. See, my my feeling was is that if you're going to have a complicated play field, you better have a very simple play technique. Uh, on the other hand, you can have a very simple play field, and you can have a very complex play, like a bingo game. You know. But to have both, you're just going to have a player that's never going to understand the game. The player will never figure out what the heck he's supposed to do. That's the way games are now. You can't understand what it is you're supposed to do on the first or second play. So uh, my, uh, I wanted interaction between the three play fields, but you know, keep it simple so you know what it is, what, what the heck is going on. Well, when they reprogrammed it, I think they, they took a lot of that out. They added a lot of stuff that made the game way too complicated. Now, what do you mean they reprogrammed it? Well, at that time, well, when we started doing college state games, whoever designed the game was responsible for programming it, just like we were responsible for the wiring, you know, for making making the rules. <clears throat> well, at that time, when the, the Haunted House era, Pink Panther era, uh, somebody got the bright idea that someone else, other than the designer, should do the programming because they would have a a fresh perspective. Well, I don't think it worked out like that at all. We had a guy doing programming that just loved complexity. He just the more complicated the, the software, the better. And they let him they let him program these games. And there's some games. I mean, look, look at Pink Panther. I remember when that game came out, they actually issued an instruction sheet, an eight and a half by eleven sheet, for the operator to tell to tell, tell them how the game works. I mean, it was just, just madness, you know. It was, it was ridiculous. And Haunted House wasn't that bad, but uh, I'll tell you, there were some parts of that game that to this day I don't understand how they work now. <laughs> hmm. So I think, uh, I think that a simple game with that kind of a complex uh, mechanical aspect would have, would have been best. Of course, I guess the game did pretty well anyhow. Well, now, 
was it um i mean how did you have it simplified like that the basic premise to me of Hanna's house is on the main play field you've got those numbered five targets that you have to hit in order you know was that part of your design don't recall i really don't remember how that game is supposed to play you don't i assume you don't have your own haunted house you didn't keep one no you know i don't know you you can't keep one i i never knew anybody who had a new game uh, unless they got it through a distributor because you got to remember these games are are commercial items they're commercial equipment and uh you know, how much does a game cost? Well, it depends on where you buy it. So I say, how much is a car worth? But just to take a game off the line and take it home, no, that that didn't happen. Because <clears throat> every game is going to be sold to a distributor. What about the engineering samples? What happened to those? Uh, those would usually just get, get thrown in the dumpster. Well, we had a, we had a, uh, a um, uh, like a compactor. And uh, they would just, just, just chuck everything. Because, you know, the beat goes on. Here comes another game next week, another game after that. You, you, you just can't keep that stuff. So it's just all that stuff gets trashed. Man, you didn't bring home an engineering sample? I did not. I can't believe it. But, you know, at the time, it just seemed like another game. It seemed like here's something that's good for the company. It's going to make money. And now what? What are we going to do next? You know, and we just we just move on. you got to remember, this, this was today. This, we weren't building games for collectors. Right. I know it's so easy to say that oh, if only I had, only I had one. Now there is one game that I really would like to find because there's only six of them in existence. The game called Grab It. You ever hear of that? No. Who made that? I I made it. G R A B B I T. We had all these video cabinets around. Even all the video stuff was in Bensonville. We had these cabinets. I thought, boy, you know, we'll do something, but make some sort of an upright game. And I made, uh, I eventually made something like a, like a kicker catcher. Where these, all these small, like, well, a little bit bigger than pachinko balls would drop, drop from the top and go all through these pegs and pins. And you had a catcher, like a pan, along the bottom of the play field that you moved back and forth with a crank. And you had to catch the ball. If you didn't catch the ball, it wouldn't score. If you didn't catch the ball, it would score. And there were some rollovers on this vertical play field so, you know, you could score and advance, things like that and whatnot. And, uh, I did all the engineering on that. I did all the documentation. That that was great. That was a lot of fun. But uh, they liked it. They said, well, let's let's build some prototypes. And you know, you go ahead and gear up for prototypes. We'll set up a prototype line in in, in one corner of the of the factory, which had been done before in the old days. In fact, that's how the one ball games, the Daily Racers games, were built in the 30s, just over in the corner there. Huh. And uh, and uh, we got artwork. The artwork was. Uh, a picture, a lot of pictures of balls dropping from the sky. They're falling into a trash can. They're falling through a pizza that a guy's carrying. You know, comical things like that. And the name of the game that they chose was Grab It. And then we set up a production line, and it used, I think it used the System 2. Yeah, it must have used, must have used the System 2. And um, we built six of them, and we put them on location. I don't know who, who handled this. I don't know if it was Empire Distributing or who it was, but they put them on location. And, uh, of course, they, they didn't set the world on fire, but that was the last I ever heard of them. And somewhere out there, there's those six games, probably still in the Chicago area. Hmm. Now, the the vertical up kicker that moved the ball from the lower play field on Haunted House, 
back up to the uh, you know the main plate field. How was that a challenge to design? Yeah, that was. Uh, I knew that was going to be a problem because uh, if you think about the lower plate field sloping away from the player, well, by the time it gets to the out hole down there, it's very far away from the mid level. And uh, so I did some experiments. I I set up a you know a bench. Uh, a bench prototype of this thing, and just see, you know, can I kick the ball straight up like that? And I think I tried to pack a pop bumper coil, and it seemed like it was pretty strong. It seemed like it was going to work, and it was pretty reliable. I, I know now, of course, I should have had a special coil made that was like 120 volts, something like that. But that was the Achilles heel of the game, certainly. Uh, we found <coughs> uh, we found uh, operators were calling and saying that the ball would would kick up, and then fall right back down. And, of course, it would try again. The processor would just keep triggering it. Well, as the coil gets hot, the, the resistance of the coil goes up, and it becomes weaker and weaker, and pretty soon it's just a vicious circle. The, uh, the cure for that was uh, to have direct wiring. See, all the solenoids in the game, of course, were driven by, by transistors on the transistor PC board. Well, there's always losses in that. There's always voltage drop across the transistor, so not all the power reaches the, the coil. So what we did, we put a relay right next to the up kicker, and on that relay we have these huge tungsten points like we had on our DC pop bumpers and kickers, and we had the PC driver board operate that relay coil. And then we had, you know, the, so the wiring was local to that solenoid, so there was no losses. And uh, that seemed to fix it. That, that seemed to do it, as I recall. I don't know if we sent out kits or, uh, you know, told our distributors what to do. I, I don't know what was done in the field. But from a certain point on, we, we made all the games with that auxiliary relay. So when you design this game, it's got, what, like eight flippers. Did they, like, come to you and say, eight flippers, you know how much that's going to cost? No. No, they never did. They never. They, when they saw this thing, they thought, "Oh, they they were they were impressed by it." And they could tell, you know, they could tell by looking at it, this is going to be an expensive game. And uh, no, they didn't. They didn't say anything. Yes, you, you told me to build a three-level game with lots of features. No, they never said you you shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. No, they they never did that. So they didn't try and say, "Look, you've got four flippers on the main playfield. Can't you just make it two? No, no, no. They never tried to edit me like that. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, did they? Um, you know, in the in the back box, you had that kind of lightning effect um, behind the 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 behind the um, you know the screen glass. Yeah. Did yeah. now whose idea was that? That was probably Rich Tracy's, the artist. Uh, for me, it was just another light box. You know, again, like I said, we had standard light boxes in engineering, and I just plugged into a, a standard light box. Uh, our Rich Tracy, our artist, probably was the one who, who dreamed that up. He dreamed up the name, too, where he decided they were, we're going to use that, that name uh, that we were going to use on that other game with the kickers. We're going to use that on this game. Then it was, you know, that's really out of my hands. So did you think that that Haunted House title and theme fit the game well? Yeah, I did. I thought it was pretty cute. You know, with the, with the basement and the attic and everything, I, I thought uh, Rich did a real good job of the way it looks. Now, what about the music? Who did the music? Uh, we had another guy that was brought in a couple of years before to do sound and voice. Uh, his name was Craig, and uh, he did that. We had, a, and that was pretty much all he did. He did the, the speech and things like that. That was his speciality. Yeah, because the music is really, really cool in that game. Yeah, yeah. He did the music for, um, 
rocky and uh, close encounters and things like that. So, yeah, the music, that was considered to be a big selling point at that time. Now, the game did not have speech or, or it didn't talk. Was that something that you, you could, that you could have had in it? I suppose it was a standard, uh, standard system, yeah. But that, was it, you just didn't think it needed it? Well, it really wasn't my decision. You know, I, I think they probably wanted to get this thing into production because there was so much tooling to be done. They, they thought, you know, we've got enough here. We don't need to, we don't need speech. I, I, I don't know. I, again, I, I just, so I have no memory of that decision being one way or the other. Now, tell me about the trap door mechanism and how you came up with that. Well, the trap door was was based on a, on actual on a part that I actually found. It was uh, you know I can't remember what it was, but it was some kind of device where it was a floor or something that, that was released. It would release when you pulled on the shaft or. Something I, I had the uh, I had the tool room build something based on this that I want to use this but again. It looked so cool, and now I had a place to place to put it because if I open the trap door, now I got a place for the ball to go. It's like that roll down target. I have I have a destination for it now. Yeah, I'm working on a Gottlieb game from 1952 right now. It's called Happy Days, and it has that trap door where that's how it releases the balls. To the ball tray. It's really kind of, it reminded me of Haunted House. Really? Yeah. Well, I'd heard something like that, you know, had been used, but I wasn't sure where it was. Okay, that's, that's the first clear explanation I've had of that thing. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty neat little feature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, the, the other thing that I noticed on, on Haunted House is you use these lighted posts where, you know, up along that upper ball arch on the left-hand side, there's like uh, a two or three posts that have light bulbs underneath them. What was up with that? Well, that, uh, again, something I had found in the in the archives of Gottlieb, I found a post that looked like a baby bottle nipple. It, in other words, a post but didn't have a screw down the middle. It had It, it flared out, and, and you, you would install it from the other side of the play field, and it was flanged. And the, the, and the flange had screws holes in it. So you'd screw it to the underside of the play field, and that way you could put a light in it. And again, I thought, you know, why not? That really looks cool. And it's dark up in that corner. I, was going to be, I knew it was going to be dark up in that corner. So I thought, here is something I can try. And if they don't like it, it doesn't change anything. If they want to take them out, put regular posts there, it's not going to change the way the game plays. So I just put it in there as a little kicker. And I tell you the truth, I was surprised when they said, "Yeah, look, we're going to we're going to do that. We're going to make new tooling for those posts." I was surprised that they they bought that because again, it's just, it's more money, it's more tooling. Yeah, that whole game is amazing. I mean, it's got drop targets, it's got you know the trap door, it's got your your uh, your escape uh, target. Man, it's just got it's got new everything. Well, that that was kind of the idea. Yeah, yeah, throwing everything in the kitchen sink. Well. I mean, it came out really well. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm glad you think so. I, I guess everybody, it is kind of a kind of a cool game. It's, it's unique, and certainly in the number of flippers it has. Right, right. No, that game's unique, uh, you know, all around. It's a great game too. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, there was nothing. I mean, even to this day, there's there's no like three level game. That you know, I mean, maybe there was another three-level game. I don't know, but uh, there's nothing like Haunted House. Haunted House kind of stands, you know, it stands all by itself. I mean, that's that 
that's like the of the eighties. That's almost like the pinnacle, you know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> probably everybody in the industry looked at that and they thought, "Are you kidding? There's no way we're going to sink that kind of money into a game. Let Godly do it." <laughs> well, it was. A, I will say that it was. It was a. It's a complicated game to to repair. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's tough to repair. We started hearing about that right away. People, you know, the repairmen they can't get at the power supply. You gotta take out the, the lower play field to, to do any work on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can always put the upper play field up against the back box, and then I can take the lower play field and kind of swing it around so it's leaning against the upper play field. You can get at it. It's just you gotta jump through a couple hoops. Right, right. And you know, they weren't used to that. In every other game, the bottom board's right there. You know, it's just more, more work, more labor, and you know, more time charging by the hour to fix those games. So other than, like, the vertical up kicker, were there any other big issues that, when that game went out, that you, that you first heard about as far as reliability? You know, like the roll-down target and the, the trap. Oh, it's just pretty simple, really. I mean, it's, I'm glad everyone thinks it's clever and novel, but mechanically, they're, they're pretty simple, you know. Turn around where that trap door is. Is there a roll under? Yeah, there is. I was laying that out. I realized I wanted a large area so the ball would get in there easily. But, uh, so how are you going to sense the ball? Because you don't know where the ball is going to be. So I used a roll-under wire form that would pretty much cover the whole width of the passage. My idea originally was that it would be a surprise, but the idea was you'd shoot the ball in there, and at the last second the ball is whipping around, it hits the roll-under, and suddenly the trap door opens. Hmm. Again, another surprise for the player. Right. And it doesn't always do that. Sometimes the ball just rolls around, comes out, and the roll-under gives you, you know, 5,000 points or whatever. But once in a while, the trap door opens, and bang, the ball's on the lower level before you, before you even realize what happened. And if you've set everything up, then the trap door's open. Right, right. But you know it's open. You see it's there. Right, right. Yeah. Because it uses, like, a flipper coil so they can, you know, with an end-of-stroke switch so it can actually hold the trap door open without burning the coil. Right, yeah. Now, what about the pop bumpers? The pop bumpers on, along the left side of the main play field, they seem very, uh, uh, you know, lonely as it may be. <laughs> well, you know, you, you can see I didn't have a lot of room there because of that, that big window and the, where the, uh, where the, uh, upper play field came down. There, there, there just wasn't a lot of room to put stuff. I had to have some pop bumpers, I had to have some action on the middle play field. So right. It was sort of out of necessity, you know, that they are where they were. Now, how much, um, when did you uh, leave uh, the Gottlieb Company? That was in um, 84, February of 84. Now, why didn't you design anything after Haunted House? Um, I, I remember that they, they, they got onto a cost-cutting thing, and one of the things that they wanted to try was to build a game completely with WICO parts. You can believe that. This is where management was at that time. So we had a guy come in from WICO, and he, you know, we set up something where you can have uh, all the parts you need and all this, and uh, they told me to pick an old game that wasn't too complicated. And I picked a uh, single-player sequence game. It was a playing card theme. A- anyway, I-, I took that because it looked like it would have a pretty simple layout and... Simplified it even more, took out some of the sequence numbers and laid it out and built the whole thing with Lyco parts. And of course it was a disaster. It played like it was underwater. So that didn't get built. Uh, another thing that I, 
I thought would, would work was uh, what I called the variable flipper. This was a flipper that, a single flipper that is on a slide that rotates back and forth across the, across the play field. And you moved it with a joystick on the cabinet. And when you rotate the joystick, the flipper would slide back and forth, and then there was a button on top of the joystick to operate the flipper. I put that in the game. That looked like they were going to do it. In fact, they actually started making tooling for that. And, uh, you know, by this time, management was just aimless. They would start something and then abandon it, and they wouldn't tell us what was going on, and there just wasn't a whole lot of stuff going out by that time. Hmm. And this was, this was the Coca-Cola company was owned Gottlieb at this point? Yeah, yeah. So they were way, because so you went through, you went from the Gottlieb company with Judd running the company to Columbia Pictures to Coca-Cola. Now what, obviously, you know, there, there must have been some transitions there. Uh, only in the, uh, the president's, you know, Judd left and we got, um, um, what's his name? Bob Bloom. Bob Bloom. And I don't know who, where he came from, if he was a Columbia person or what. But um, he was kind of a cold fish. I just, you know, he wasn't doing anything. I, I think what it was is once Judd left, <clears throat> you know, and Alvin wasn't so involved and Wayne had retired, they, they all sort of happened at once. And all of this institutional memory went with these people. I mean, uh, true, the industry was changing. I don't think there was anybody who really could tell them how the industry was changing. That's one thing. But the other thing was that nobody was coming along with that institutional memory. Nobody knew what to do with, with pinball. And the company just drifted. They, they came in, one time they came in to design a skee-ball game in a, in a cabinet, in a standard cabinet. In fact, I used a variable flipper for that. That was a good game. Uh, they played the crap out of that. Why didn't they build it? I don't know. They just, you know, it just faded. I built a uh, baseball machine. I built a, a pitching unit, like, uh, well, not a motorized pitching unit, but a solenoid-driven one. And I used smaller balls, and I had, like, the classic uh, baseball game holes along the back of the play field, you know, the big holes and the little hole. And I did a man-running unit in lights on the play field. And uh, that worked really, using the smaller ball, a regular bat, a regular flipper was really was like a baseball bat. It would really whip that ball across the play field. And uh, again, everybody in engineering played that game till the play field was just black. And build it. I don't know why. You know, I just I just don't remember. Hmm. I think they were concentrating a lot on video. You know, they were sending all their sending the the talent and the attention over to Bensonville. They were pinning everything on Mach three, which was a good game, but not pinball. So we did try a few things. We did try some uh, arcade pieces, but they never made it. Hmm. So what what was the final straw that made you leave in eighty or in uh, yeah nineteen eighty four? Well, I didn't leave. I was laid off. I was thinking. I was actually uh, sniffing around other jobs. I had my my hand in with some uh, employment places, and uh, and then no, they they called me in and you know told me they had to lay me off because of uh, you know the conditions. Hmm. And uh, oh, it worked out okay because I had been there 12 years, so I got uh, about, about 16 weeks of pay, you know. So that wasn't too bad, but uh, that was the end. And then I guess uh, about nine months later, they folded. Right, and then they got 
bought out by the distributors and changed names and went to MyStar or whatever it was. No, then that was, uh, that was, uh, uh, Oh, Premier? Premier, yeah, yeah, Gottlieb Premier, yeah. Now we, we had been MyStar at that time. Oh, oh, so you went through that transition too. Yeah, MyStar was a Columbia name. Oh, right, 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 yeah. my bad. Yeah, they, they liked that word. They had, remember, they, they had Rastar, which was Ray Stark. And they had some other star name, and then they, we came along and they called us Milestar. We, we, call, we called it Millstar because, you know, being, being derisive about it, because any of us who knew company history knew that any time a game, it seemed like any time a, a game company changes name, that's the kiss of death, like with Chicago Coins. <laughs> right. So. so then where did, where did you go after Gottlieb? After Gottlieb, I got hired at a place uh, in, in California that made uh, plastic hose and tubing. We made, like, swimming pool uh, vacuum hose and vacuum cleaner hose. So I, I'm still still an engineer. So I still got to do, you know, drafting and designing and some electrical work. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So your time at Gottlieb, I mean, did you did you really enjoy? And would, if they were still open today, would you still be working there? Boy, I don't know. You know, you, you just don't know because when I think about all the places I've worked since, I am much better an engineer for having seen other industries. You know, I know about things that I would never know about if I just stayed at Gottlieb. Uh, of course, on the other hand, you know, I would still be at Gottlieb. So who knows? You know, maybe uh, maybe it was for the best. I I, I don't know. There, the, the industry is gone. There's no doubt about it now. You know, there's, there's just nothing left. So I don't know. I never, I never thought about going to work for Williams or somebody else like that at the time. Right? Did you, did you put out a resume to Williams or Bally at that time? Um, I don't think so. I think I also had one of those non-compete contracts that wouldn't let me do that. Those turned out to be illegal, but I think at the time I, I don't think I ever did. Interesting. I don't think Williams was in all that great of shape either. None of, nobody was in great shape that time. Right? Yeah, it was kind of an industry downturn then. Yeah, you know, I, I just can't imagine. You know, we got it going out of business, and uh, you mean Williams is going to hire? That that just didn't seem likely. And they, plus, they were way downtown. I, you know, come on, <laughs> right. they were a long way from where I was living. I really appreciate the time. Um, it's it's been great. I mean, uh, you know, your your stories. I, I I really like them. I mean, you got some really. I mean, just the way you got into the industry and you know went through college. Like you know, it's just amazing how you how you actually got into this. <laughs> did you ever? You didn't. You never heard any of my my talks at, at Expo or any of them, did you? You know, I I guess they didn't because I go to Expo. Well, you know. I've been going to Expo maybe the last five years, and and I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen you there. Yeah, I think it's been about five years since the last time I was there. Maybe I'll go this year, but they've been kind enough to to ask me to speak the last couple of times I went about, you know, the Gottlieb days, and that that was a lot of fun. That that was that worked out real well. Well, how was the Gottlieb lunch lady? What do you mean, how was she? Well, I mean, how you know they they made lunch for you guys every day, right? Yes, and it cost two dollars a week. Two dollars. And I mean, even then, that was a bargain. We, you know, that was that was cheap even then. <coughs> and the, the funny thing, the the ladies 
in the front office who also were involved in this, they only had to pay a dollar. Which was funny, I don't know, because uh, I don't, I, looking at those ladies, I don't see how they could do this based on the premise that somehow they ate less. Because that sure wasn't the case. <laughs> that's great. Now Liz, Liz was, uh, she was, uh, that's all she did. She came in and cooked. And sometimes we could smell it in the morning. You know, she cooked right from 7 o'clock right, right till noon. And, uh, yeah, it was only for the front office people, and we only had a half hour for lunch because, you know, where are you going to go? You didn't go anywhere. And uh, it was, she, these were real, real food. In fact, in some ways it was, it was like dinner. It was almost too much sometimes. But it was pretty good, and uh, you had to be on her good side because she was she was she was touchy. She you know she she could be grouchy, but she fortunately she liked me. She was German, and I guess she had been through a lot of bad trouble during the war. I guess they had you know I don't know, tortured her or something. She she you know she she had a lot of a lot of stories, a lot of bad times during the war. <clears throat> but uh, she was she was practically family. She was you know almost and member of the Gottlieb family. They they loved her so much. And then uh, when the when we engineering moved to the back back of the building and started getting much bigger and you know the, when management started to outnumber the people on the floor they cut that out they they said they said to like people at my level they said well we're going to give you an hour for lunch but you're not getting Liz anymore hmm. so that that stopped that I think only the very top people got got that anymore who did she develop the menu or did she or did you have some influence on that. She, we, she would, uh, she would cook whatever she, uh, you know, felt like cooking. Every day would be something different. She had a certain repertory. You know, we knew, we knew, we, we could, we could smell what smells like pork chops. Well, it's going to be Liz's pork chops. You know, that sort of thing. You know, she had a, she had a good rotation. So they had a pretty sizable kitchen there, Gottlieb. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was about the size of maybe a, a small, uh, <clears throat> a, a small like a strip kitchen in, in a home. She had a, you know, an oven and a stove and cupboards, and, and there was like a cook window. On the other side of that cook window was the, the small room where we all sat. There was about, oh, about six round tables. Hmm. And how long had she been working at Gottlieb? Oh, forever. You know, you'd have to ask Wayne that, uh, forever. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of a company that had their own personal cook. <laughs> no, I haven't either. That, that, was, that was pretty cool. You know, even at the time, it was a very impressive thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool, John. Hey, and thank you again. I really do appreciate the time. Oh, you're quite welcome. If you need anything else, just give me a call. Okay. I'd like to thank John Osborne at Gottlieb for joining us today on TopCast. We really do appreciate his time, and I love hearing his stories on how he was designing his own games as a kid, all the way up to, you know, doing Haunted House for Gottlieb. Some great, great stories, and thank you very much, John, and I hope you all will be back again to hear another episode of TopCast.